0: Poetry is the silence and speech between a wet, struggling root of a flower and a sunlit blossom of that flower. Poetry is a phantom script telling how rainbows are made and why they go away. Carl Sandberg this is the Phantom Script, a poetry reading podcast. Crisosto Apache's poems have been published to Yellow Medicine Review, Red Ink Magazine, Denver Quarterly, Cream City Review, The Plume Anthology, Chicago's Poetry Foundation archival site, Hawaii Review, and to Christopher Felver's book of photography, Tending the Fire, Native Voices and Portraits. Genesis, 2018, is Cresotto's first collection of poems from Lost Alphabet, and a collection I'm reading now from the publisher's blurb that stems from the vestiges of memory and cultural identity of a self-emergence as language, body, and cosmology. Crisosto just won the Betty Burson Emerging Writer Award. Apache is Mescalero Apache, Chiricahua Apache, Dine Navajo, of the Salt Clan, born of the Towering House Clan. Crisosto holds an MFA from the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Crisosto teaches writing at the college levels, and is involved in advocacy work for the Native American of two-spirit identity. Grisosto Apache, welcome to The Phantom Script, and thank you for joining me for a conversation and readings on this spring morning in Colorado. Thank you, Vincent, for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate the invite. The gratitude is all mine. First off, uh, what did I miss in the introduction, especially forthcoming collections of poems? I just recent, recently released my second book,
1: which is called Ghost Word, back in October of 22. And um, it has gotten a lot of really good reception from, from a lot of people and places. So I'm really excited about uh, this new collection. So it's still fairly new. And I think that's really where, where a lot of the newer poems come from. Uh, if you've looked on the internet or follow specific literary journals, I'm currently finishing up my third manuscript, and a lot of poems from that collection have been published as well. so I'm looking to start sending this manuscript out to
0: publishers hopefully by the end of the year. Well, congratulations on on all of these achievements so glad to to hear that you know i I do think the best way to experience your work at least in this medium, is to hear you read and allow some time for conversation on the work. Might you be so kind as to read from past and perhaps recently published work? Sure. I am going. I can read
1: a, a couple of poems, maybe from my first book, and then maybe I'll focus more on my
0: second book. Terrific. May I make a request? <laughs> sure, sure. So to start, a poem that moved me in particular, is one I believe you wrote for your uncle, entitled "Cariso." Oh, right, right. That, that's, that poem there seems to have been a very
1: popular poem in my second book. It was nominated for a Pushcard Prize uh, from my publisher. And ev- everywhere that I've gone to read, that seems to be the, the most request, requested poem to, to be read. So yes, I'll start off with that. That's a good, that's a really good start. Great. Uh, Number 12, Caruso for E. DeKluge. Quote, the submarines inside was dim, unquote. R Akatagawa number 12 naval base. In my youth, I hitched a ride to San Diego across chirping desert and distant night I gazed upon a slow-moving dark encasing a convex cerulean cavity. Each night I stood beneath the sky for hours mesmerized at the perplexed reformatory of twinkling lights and broken glass fragments spreading against a glistening sunset. A, face, a faceless man behind a lost reflection of a glass at a drive-up window informs me. Too bad! bad! you know nothing of your past. How far will I walk against the night, confirming to a captivity I had never realized? Some years later, under the kitchen table, they all huddle, as the rampage continues toward the back of the house. A clash of debris crashing from the other room recoils, and broken sounds escape the barricade of doors." All I remember is returning in 1970. All they remember is me sitting at the edge of my bed with the war still in my hands. Yeah, that's, this poem is, I think, uh, probably one of the more touching poems that I've written in this collection. The The, the poem started out as, what one of the things uh, that I've, that I used to do when my mother was still alive was that we would have a lot of conversations. Most particularly, a lot of the conversations we had were stories of my family, stories about growing up on the reservation. So that was one of the valuable interactions I had with my mother and she told me the story once about my uncle because he did did service in the military and also was uh was a person that had gone to Vietnam so she told me that you know he was a very you know vibrant person and and a person that was that was always very happy and you know funny like to laugh and all of that he went to Vietnam and then when he came back i she says that he was never the same one of the things that uh, she experienced when they were young was that anytime that she would stay at my uncle's house, he would sometimes experience flashbacks. And during these flashbacks, uh, uh, supposedly was that he never, he didn't remember that they were occurring and he would, you know, pretty much ransack the house. And, you know, when, when everything would calm down, they would find him sitting in his his bedroom, you know, amongst the, the messed up house. So that 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 story when my mom told me that, you know, kind of just captivated my my senses and it still does. There are moments when I read this poem and it just, you know, kind of touches me in a in a certain way that I just have to react to it. And I try not to do that when I read because I mean, I I sort of want to just give, you know, the the energy to the poem and not really be my myself as I'm reading them. Yeah, so this this poem is is one that I really really
0: appreciate uh,
1: because it has a lot to do with my family.
0: It seems to speak from so many dimensions, family, wartime service, uh, the terrible teacher that trauma is. Yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, with this, this, this second book, Ghost Word, the idea behind it is sort of, how do I call it, a, an autobiographical response maybe that many of these poems and and uh, are really about my life my experience growing up on the reservation leaving the reservation and even the stories that my mother and I exchanged yeah that if you get a hold of the book and read it many of the accounts that I talk about in this book are experiences from things that I've witnessed in my life my second book ghost word is interestingly i mean i i uh did I was invited to talk to a class back at IIA virtually, and was discussing my latest book. And, you know, it's very interesting, the students, one of the questions that they asked me was how I started, or what influenced me, or or, uh, inspired me to put this latest collection together. And the book uh, is a, a response to a 1920s modernist Japanese writer by the name of Ryanosuke Akutagawa, responding to his last manuscript, A Fool's Life. Tragically, Akutagawa committed suicide, and it was during that suicide that he wrote A Fool's Life and left it uh, as a manuscript for his publisher to discover with uh, with a note. So it was the note that got me thinking about what goes into a collection and what mindset a person has to go through to put a collection together. So this book came out of that concept of response to Akadagawa's last manuscript. And in that manuscript, he had uh, written 51 entries. And they're very short. They're like short stories or vignettes. Uh, But I used that model to to begin writing uh, this second book of mine.
0: That's very interesting. I often wonder what goes into... A poet's choice for a collection—whether they, they necessarily need to be curated around uh, common themes.
1: Yeah, I mean this this particular, like I said, this book is, has been with me for quite a long time. Uh, when I first entered college uh, back in the early '90s, uh, I became a student of, of Arthur Z. He, Arthur Z. was one; it was the person who introduced me to Akutagawa's work. Uh, he gave us the the book, uh, a carbon copy of the book, for one of his classes. And I read through that. At first, it, it didn't really like resonate with me. But I carried that carbon copy for quite some time. And then after years, it started to really speak to me. And uh, uh, like I said, it was that opening note that he left for his publisher that really struck a note inside me. And then I began to understand what that whole collection was about, because uh it seems like you know he after figuring out who Akadagawa was, I started to find out more information on him, and I also started to to seek out stories that he had written. So I began to understand like his perspective as as far as a writer what he was going through. So that last um that last manuscript began to make more sense to me in terms of going through this idea of sort of an erasure, uh because he struggled with mental illness. He never really believed that his stories were good enough, even though that they were widely accepted and published. A filmmaker turned two of his stories into films. And so he I guess, you know, just did never feel like he was his work was good enough so this idea of slowly disappearing during his his lifetime was an idea that i kind of worked with in the sense that my book rather than you know disappearing it was it was seeking for a sense of belonging yeah so uh, that book i mean his his manuscript akutagawa's manuscript is is heavily tied to this book
0: that's uh that's beautiful and i will uh, be sure to make reference to that in our social sites as we uh promote this this episode you know i could uh, I could sit here and recite the greatest hits that I'd like to hear, <laughs> or uh, I could give you an opportunity to uh choose work that uh you'd like to read for this moment
1: I know we said that, that we'd focus maybe on my new newest book, but i maybe think I'll read one or two poems from my first book just to sort of mix it up a little bit.
0: And, and please remind us of the title.
1: My first book is called Genesis Redacted. There's a line that struck through the title. The reason why I did that was not to confuse it with the biblical uh, reference in the title, the idea of Genesis being one of the books in, in, in the Bible. So I redacted it so that I could kind of empower, you know, this sense of, of emergence. My first book was sort of investigating who I was as a person, so there was a lot of experimentation. The experimentation of the book was kind of what my life was like. My whole life I always felt like I'm just kind of experimenting with everything because everything felt new to me. The book, again, relies on conversations I had with my mother, but this particular book was influenced by a conversation I had with my mother about while she was carrying me during the nine months before I was born. So the thread of the book has these nine sections of the different places where my mother had lived or had gone. And she spent mo- most of that time on my father's reservation, which is probably like 30 miles uh, west of Albuquerque, a small town on the reservation called Tohajale. The name, uh, the, the meaning behind that name is sort of like where the water originates. And I finally figured out why that was called that because, uh, and I remember this as a, as a child visiting my father is that there was a well on that reservation that a lot of the people who resided there would go in and get their water from because there was no plumbing in, on that reservation. So that's a little bit of the background behind my first collection. So I'm going to read the the final entry for the nine-month thread. Once again, a full moon positions itself between the earth and sun, absorbing all the glory of his rays, emulating. Satellite launches for the first time into Earth's orbit, and one lunar capsule plunges into the sea. Life emerges. Gull'i, my birth, August 1, 1971 to August 7, 1971. Emergent emanation from birth, like a cossed lamb. He is placed inside a shoebox. No constitution of place, towards t'al t'al, cradleboard, towards kwan, huwan, home, towards inde bikiyat, dene bikiyat, homelands, towards dene Denebizad language life's acquisition to identity towards X, a pun to mascal gatherers, blunt wood gatherers, sheep harvesters, after salt is extinct and towering houses topple. A return to origin, beginning, center fire, home, whirling. Denestagu Agu August says. Everything ripens, 1971, D'Askedon Um The last phrase of that poem uh, translates into, uh, it was always said from the very beginning. So that last poem, it, you know, these, these threads in my first book uh, that emphasizes the nine months, I kind of juxtapose something that was occurring during that month and where my mom was at in that very specific place. So it's kind of interesting because I did some research going back to 1970 and 1971. And during the, the uh, month of August in 1971, there was, they did a, a lunar launch. And then the satellite that they sent out was was like the first satellite or something like that. And then once uh, they, they did the, the lunar launch, the lunar launch came back to Earth and, and went into the sea. So, the you know this idea of like doing research and finding out what was occurring during the nine months that i that my mother was carrying me was kind of interesting. What I found out is that there was a lot of n- atomic nuclear blast testing happening, and then there was also a lot of exploration of of space and going to the moon and such. yeah, so I thought that was interesting that there was a huge tie to like space to nuclear energy, my coming into being. I don't know, I I found that kind of interesting.
0: Chrysostom, one of the things that I find very interesting in this work is how birth is, is looked at as a singular moment, as though we were originated all at once. And I find that to be a context that's really interesting to carry through the poem. And what's going on around the persons involved in your origination in the universe, it's a very interesting perspective.
1: Yeah, I was very curious about that. I mean, because like you said, oftentimes we don't really think about that moment before we're we're born, right? The physical, the physicality of being born. But there's a history that happens before that moment of birth, and I was very curious. And and why I was curious is that going back through time, I come from like a very specific lineage of people and, you know, tracing myself through that. And I don't know if it's, if it's coincidence or even purpose that, you know, I'm, I'm specifically here at this moment in time. So a lot, a lot of the ideas that I've kind of thought about and, and sort of uh, investigated was this idea of place, this movement through place and how, how much, I mean, how, how are we as people cognizant of the environments that we consistently move through and have moved through?
0: One of the reasons that it resonates with me is my parents, when they were of this world and the universe, would uh, tell my origin story in the setting of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was oh, wow. s- surrounding my birth and the birth of my first daughter. Occurred around the time of the uh, uh, the first Iraq War, so these these are meaningful and become part of our stories. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, uh, for sure. I might ask for another one here. I just uh, love the sounds in this poem. Do you have laughter available to read? Yes. Yeah.
1: That was that was another interesting story. <laughs>
0: you know. Uh,
1: Native American people are known for telling stories, right? The idea of the oratory behind uh, how stories get passed on from generation to generation. This, story, this, this particular poem, it came about because my mom was telling me a coyote story, but it was all in Apache. And the story that she was telling me was funny in Apache. But then when she started translating that to me, it was uh it was kind of sad because the translation didn't really happen or come across because English is such a weird you know transition of language and when coyotes are, stories are told uh, there there is humor uh, interjected into the story but uh, because you know it doesn't translate very well into English it loses a lot of that that effect of of humor. And humor is one of those things that a lot of Native American uh, communities use you know to uh, uh, as, as a form of morality or, or def- defining morality because they poke fun at the at the mistakes of of, of people and make it kind of a, a learning lesson as opposed to you know giving consequence or something like that so this is this was one story about coyote and duck, so I'll, I'll go ahead and read that. Number 42, Laughter. These words of two, three years ago returned. R. Akadagawa, Number 42, Laughter of the Gods. One day, coyote sees duck walking her ducklings. Coyote asks her how she keeps them in a straight line. Duck says she sews them together with white horsetail hair every morning and tugs on the line gently until the horse hair disappears. That is how she keeps her ducklings in a row. As unusual or as usual, Coyote leaves smiling. She sees a white horse grazing in a nearby field. She plucks a few strands of tail hair and returns to her burrow. The next morning, one by one, she begins to sew her pups together. When she finishes She gently tugs on the horsehair and drags their little bodies along the ground. Coyote tilts her head in dismay and becomes distraught. She realizes she has killed her little pups. Indians will laugh about anything and anyone, no matter the tragedy.
0: Brilliant. Coyote's so good at leveraging our errors and our weaknesses.
1: And, you know, to this day, coyote, sto- coyote stories are still told. And uh, it's really interesting just to, to think about the morals that are behind the uh, those stories. But when my mother was telling me the story in Apache, the part that was supposed to be funny was the moment when coyote realized by tilting her head that she she had killed her pups on accident. And it was the idea of being naive about that that was supposed to be funny. The idea of like, I don't know if you've seen this, but when dogs are very uh, curious or they're trying to understand something, they kind of tilt their head a little bit. So when she's explaining that in Apache, she's making using that as kind of a pivot of humor and the idea that being surprised that what happened to her
0: pups. I, I think we have time for at least one more, if you would like to close this with a poem of your choice. That's always a hard
1: one. <laughs> One of the poems that came up during the conversation on this visitation to to the class that I spoke to was the one I called Drizzle in my new book, uh, which kind of warranted a a conversation behind the concept of of the poem. So I'll read that. So this one is number 30, Drizzle, quote, even to his self-scrutinizing self, the answer came as a surprise, unquote. R. number thirty, rain. In my mouth, I barely remember laying on the por- on the front porch rail, young as drizzling rain begins, making those tiny clapping sounds, painfully hitting the arid ground, and always associating spring, luring inside me with an early spray. Asking myself. Am I worthy of my written words, or are my written words worthy of me? I roll off the heavy rail and stumble from the porch. From the obvious answer, I found the word on my forehead and on my laden, drunken breath, wheezing with compelling wetness, always in my blood. Yeah, this, this particular poem took me back to when I was a teenager. And we grew up in the mountains, so one of the things I loved to do when I was, <clears throat> was, when I was a kid was uh, on our front porch, there was this kind of broad rail that you could lay on and you wouldn't be able to fall off because it, so, it was broad. Uh, I used to like to lay on that front porch and listen to the rain fall. We, we had a front yard, and then there was the roadway, and then across the roadway was this huge me- uh, meadow, and so when the rain came down, you could just hear the rain off into the distance in, in the meadow, as well as listening to it in the, uh, near, near where I was laying. And it, it kind of made me think about when I was a young kid, you know, all the mistakes that, that you make as, as, you know, as you're going through life. But, you know, the story really is around the idea of how early I was exposed to chemical dependency uh, because that that's just something that you go through living on a reservation. And it's something that kind of gets passed down from generation to generation. And it's one of the things that you use as a way of calming the trauma that, that you experience on a reservation. So the rain kind of reminded me of this moment that um, the rain has endured a, a millennia. It's been there as part of a natural cycle. And... When the rain hits the ground, as painful as that momentum is, it still lives and part of this, this cycle that it, you know, has lasted a long time. So for me, anytime that I see that, it reminds me that I can still survive, I can still endure the hardships of life uh, because there's something more natural, more powerful that has done it for a long time than I have. So there's nothing much I should complain about.
0: Well, where would we be without rain? right yeah
1: i think i you know with these the newer poems that i'm talking about because they're they're a different format from my first book and they're more about the personal stories uh i think i find you know myself sort of evolving as far as you know the writing that i'm doing my first book was just kind of this mess i'm not to say that that's a bad thing but after seeing that after experiencing that book going into the world my, when i started focusing on my second book i started to pull myself back in so that i can focus more on the control uh of the of the stories that i was trying to tell and i think the autobiographical nature of the poems made me realize that there's more to just this story than what i'm trying to tell so i i really paid attention to the way to the way that i wanted these uh, these poems in my new book to be experienced. That same kind of perspective is, is allowing me to interact inter- in a different way with my third manuscript.
0: Any um, expectations on the release of that? I try not to have expectations because, I mean,
1: of course, you know, my expectations are really huge. <laughs> and if they don't meet them, then <laughs> I get disappointed. So I kind of don't like putting expectations on things and I just take it moments at a time. Just like the, you know, when I won the award for my second book, I didn't, didn't really think about that. You know, the, the poem, uh, the poem that was nominated for the Pushcart prize, then, you know, a couple uh, a few months later, then there's an, you know, an award that it was, that it had won. So if I went into this with those expectations, then then that's good. But if I had those ex- expectations and they weren't met, then it's for me, it's kind of disappointing.
0: <laughs> well said. Well, we won't burden the work itself with any uh, expectations.
1: <laughs> but, but if it's received well, then I th- you know that's what I hope for. Sure. Yeah. And, and that the, the poems find a home. I think it's it's always great and I that's what I get excited about is when I send poems out or when I when I've got like my two books I think it's the the greatest feeling out of that is that my my poems are now living in the world and people have access to
0: them a uh, a poet I had a conversation with expressed the the achievement so to speak as uh, I I want my poem to find a friend Yes
1: I think that's that's a good way of looking at it. So yeah, the writing process for me is, is very different each time and with each poem. I mean, I just have to go back and realize that, you know, every poem that I'm working on is not the same from the previous or the next, that it deserves kind of the attention for that specific piece of writing. And I think that's what's difficult about writing poems is that, you know, you have to kind of put yourself aside and look at the poem as the poem wants to exist, taking back a lot of that control that you try to, you know, that you have organizing your life, or at least try to. But writing poetry, you focus more on the poem that's right in front of you. For me, at least that's what uh, what happens when I begin to write.
0: Especially as we live and move about in this world where essentially everything is a prompt. Right, right. If you're a very good
1: observer, then you see a lot of inspiration around you. That's one of the things I try to tell my students in, in my creative writing classes, is that how often do we really stop and look around to see uh, what can influence us in the moments that we move through each day? I think it's, uh, th- there's two writers that kind of get me to think about that. One is uh, Gertrude Stein and the other one is Virginia Woolf. Yeah, that's those moments of, of observation and how that translates into the emotional attachments that we have to our environments if we let ourselves go a little bit.
0: Perhaps if you have time, one more? Sure. Thanks.
1: Here's one that, uh, that I wrote for my father. This one is called Sleep, for my father, Alfred. Quote, But as long as there was darkness... He believed in light that went with it, unquote. Our cogwheels, number five, Shako. In sleep, summer dawns a shift from slumbering eyes struggling to open, trying to remain joined with us. Distant birds bicker above the roadways where awes of emergency vehicles shrill against the dying dark, igneous mesas. There's a dream and a time for resting, on a long hillside where his bed opens, to a widespread meadow under the overpass. Irreversible, he sighs. Gone are my ills. Above the, crane, the cranes fly away from benevolence. Specks of rain begin to splash gallantly inside the, ele- the elegant cupping plumes of wet deerweed. From afar, the light fights to enter the islets, as a forgotten word shifts out and unwritten.
0: Well, wow. The light fights to enter the islets.
1: Yeah, I haven't really had a lot of um, moments to talk about my, my new book. I mean, I've only been doing that recently, but each time I'm reading these, um, it's it's kind of crazy when you start reading uh, your work over and over, you become more familiar with what you've written, even though you've written them before and you've spent time developing them. One, I'm always captivated when I go back to read something and it just begins to make me think a little bit more about how these came about. And I start to notice the poem more, <laughs> uh, just like uh, the, the poem I just read. I mean, I remember writing that quite some time back, uh, and how it found its way into this uh, particular book uh, was interesting. Each one of these poems uh, has a memory attached to it, and it makes me think.
0: <laughs> well, it's as though the that earlier metaphor I was speaking of, the poem becomes your own friend. Right. Well, Chrysostom, I I really enjoyed this. I want to express my gratitude for you taking the time today to share your work, speak about it. Uh, Thank you again. Well, thank you very
1: much, Vincent, for spending time and having this conversation.
0: Chrysosto Apache's latest collection of poetry, Ghost Word, is available from Gnashing Teeth Publishing. Find out more by visiting gnashingteethpublishing.com forward slash books forward slash An inspiration found in the work Otobagawa's A Fool's Life from 1927 is still in print. We'll add links, including destinations for sampling Apache's work, on our Facebook page, The Phantom Script, a poetry reading podcast. Find more episodes at shows.acast.com forward slash the hyphen phantom hyphen script, or wherever you find and subscribe to podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. April is National Poetry Month, so we'll be back before the month is over with a selection of classic poems, then more poetry and conversations in May. Join us again, won't you?